what we must demand is a break with the past, a break with the present, a new way of dealing with our situation. And it can't be by fixing what's wrong. It won't be by a return to a pseudo-democracy that never allowed for full participation. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Captain Charles Moore. Captain Moore is widely known as the person who discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which by now you've probably heard of. It is an area in the ocean that is twice the size of Texas, three times the size of France, that contains by some estimates as many as three and a half trillion pieces of plastic. And it's one of five such patches in the ocean. It is incredible and it is an environmental challenge that is only getting worse. Captain Moore's book is Plastic Ocean, How a Sea Captain's Chance Discovery Launched a Determined Quest to Save the Oceans. Many of the environmental challenges that Captain Moore writes about and talks about began before any of us were born, but the way we are living as consumers contributes to and is accelerating many of these concerns. And when we view it from that perspective, each of us has some responsibility and every one of us can do something to make a difference. You know, a lot of the things that I learned in this interview, a lot of the things I learned by reading this work and researching Captain Moore, they kind of freaked me out. But at the same time, I realize, you know, we say ignorance is bliss, but I don't know that that's true. And until we face the reality of things and we're willing to take responsibility, nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to get better. If you, like me, are concerned about the state of affairs on planet Earth today, Captain Moore is someone who, if you don't already know him and his work, you might be interested to learn more from. One way you can do that, of course, is listening to this interview. Another way is reading his book. And yet another way is to visit one of his websites and see if you want to get involved in some way. You can learn more about Captain Moore by visiting captain-charles-moore.org. That's M-O-O-R-E. You can learn more about Captain Moore's latest work, which is taking place at the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution Research by visiting moreplasticresearch.org. And finally, you can also learn more about the foundation he started way back in 1994 at algalita.org. That's A-L-G-A-L-I-T-A.org. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Captain Charles Moore. Captain Moore, welcome to the School for Good Living. Nice to be with you today. Captain, will you tell me what is life about? Well, life is about liberating oneself from those things that constrain it. In our society today, we're constrained by so many 
forces invading our inner space. So what life is increasingly about today is extricating oneself from those forces which have invaded our mind space and created a kind of moronization of the populace as a whole. So for me, what life is about is the struggle to become free from the society that is so oppressive at this time in history. Now, I wonder how much of that worldview, how much of that response was formulated from an upbringing that included, as I understand, when you would go on family vacations, your dad would take you to whatever local garbage dump you might be near. And will you tell me what that was like? Well, not only on vacation, we visited the local garbage dump landfill near my home as well. And now it's been built on and it is the most curvy road in our town that has to constantly be redone because it's full of methane leaking into the homes. The homes have to have methane pumps to get rid of the gas that leaks out of the landfill. And the idea that somehow we're going to live on our trash is kind of mitigated by this, but that is what is happening. We are creating a world in which there's a little bit of space between landfills left. And so we're having to actually build on the landfills. It's a big problem. But this wasn't the focus of my parents' interest in it. It was more like an anthropological exercise in which we'd see what the people were throwing away, what kind of products were there, what was part of the civilization that we were visiting. You know, I remember especially the one in Kona, Hawaii that we went to when I first visited there. That was back in the day. I don't know if you can remember Art Linkletter, but he had a show about kids. It was kind of cute. And I remember seeing him at the Kona Inn in the pool they had built on the reef so that the waves would crash into the swimming pool. And I swam in the pool with Art Linkletter and, and walked down the street and saw Richard Boom Paladin in one of the bars. This is just a little kid cruising around looking around. But we also, you know, while we visited Kona, Hawaii, we visited the dump and we saw what people throw. I don't have any specific memory of the items in the dump, but I do remember the visit. And I think that's why I put it in the book is because I don't know that somebody visiting a island out in the middle of the Pacific, like Hawaii, that in the early uh, 60s, late 50s, was still a truly remote paradise. You had to get there by boat. It was, a plane was a rare thing to fly to Hawaii in those days. So, yeah, my parents always told me that I didn't have to be like other people. That you don't have to copy what everyone else is doing. You can be different. And that, I think, was one of the reasons why I am the way I am. That we were different as a family, and we like that. When you say you were different, and you say one of the reasons you are the way you are, how are you, and how is your family different? Well, I'm certainly a nonconformist, and I've been able to not only be different, but to be different in a way that I think presages a future world. So that the importance of being different is the importance of being able to see a new world, a better world. I think that's what life is about. And so just give you an example, I went to Will Rogers Junior High School. And Roundup Day was a day in which the students could wear anything they wanted. And it was sort of like Grub Day. But my friend Steve Ruckel and I, on Roundup Day, we would wear a three-piece suit and tie. What was that about? 
That was about being completely opposite of what everybody else was. So if everyone else had worn a three-piece suit, you would have come in your grubbies, (laughs) but because they didn't, you did. Right. I was pulled aside at graduation roughly by the principal, grabbed around the neck and told that if I came in my sandals, open-toed sandals, that I would be expelled. Sounds like a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) And? So, and I know that also principal sent a team to tell my mother that they'd heard about a plan that we had to burn a peace sign in the uh, field where the graduation ceremony was going to be held and that we had better not do that. (laughs) So did you, this was the sixties, this was 1965. So this kind of, yeah, burning a peace sign in the sixties, that would have definitely been countercultural to the counterculture, right? But what was, so did you end up wearing those open-toed sandals to graduation? Now, one of the ways that I've survived and made it to the ripe old age that I'm in right now is that I don't wait to be hunted to hide. I've been able to conform at the last minute, so to speak, in such a way that I prevented myself from truly having my freedom taken away. It's an adaptive quality. Survival in every species that's managed it maybe has that, right? Let me ask you this. So before we get into a discussion about Plastic Ocean, about your book, I understand that of all the random things you found in the ocean, you've chosen to collect, of all things, umbrella handles. Is this true? And why? Yeah. And you have to make a choice because every consumer good that can float is going to be on the beaches and in the middle of the ocean. And I like the form of the umbrella handles, a pleasant Uh, curved form and they stack nicely on a display table. A lot of my work at the beginning was dog and pony shows where you take all your stuff you found and show people so they get an idea of what the heck's going on out there. But toothbrushes also been something that I collected. So those are the two main items I showed in this dog and pony show was the toothbrushes and the umbrella handles. And it's interesting because It takes a while for an umbrella handle to become disengaged from the umbrella. I would think so. The umbrella being metal and fabric would sink and the handle would be the part that would float. But until that metal part would rust or become fragile or somehow get broken so that the handle could be liberated in order to float means that that item has been throughout the water column. It's probably been at the bottom of the ocean and probably been in the midwater and then come to the top. And when I was in Tokyo, a lot of these umbrellas were the cheap oriental kind that I, and the Western Pacific, of course, is wetter than the Eastern Pacific. We're at the desert side of the ocean. And the Western side, the Asian side, is much more subject to moisture. And there's a lot of umbrellas. And, and, and when I was interviewed for Nightline, they came on the boat and asked me why there were so many toothbrushes in the ocean or why there's so many umbrella handles. And I said, well, they're throwaway items now. An umbrella might have been something that you would have for a lifetime in a previous era, where now you might just use it for one storm. It might break in the wind. And then you just get another one. Why? Because we manufacture now at such a rate items for popular consumption that the cost has come down to where footwear, toothbrushes, umbrella handles are so cheap that people don't preserve them. They don't hang on to them. And that's, I'm sure we'll get into talking about waste and the culture of waste. And waste is so important as a symbol of our peaking civilization. 
Yeah. But that idea that I'm going to have to collect something to show people just what's going on out there. Yeah, umbrella handles are easy to carry around and show, so are toothbrushes. And you get to see where they come from. I was walking in the streets of Tokyo and saw a broken umbrella lying on the street. I said, this is where they're coming from. They're washing down the gutters into the ocean and then decaying and then becoming part of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So, yeah, that's how I came to be interested in umbrella handles. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I understand you found all manner of things in your book. You write pipes, blue plastic tarps, plastic sheeting, laundry baskets and crates, plastic foam floats, hollow plastic floats, once in a while glass floats, footwear, jerry cans, felt pens, golf balls, glue sticks, hard hats, toothbrushes, as you've said, coat hangers, TV cathode ray tubes, tools, camera and briefcases, fishing lures, hope, soap, bleach, condiment bottles, popsicle sticks, toys, sporting equipments. Umbrella handles, bottle caps, light sticks, oyster spacers, lighters, hangfish traps, balloons, a plastic knife scabbard, a Japanese traffic cone, plastic chair parts, and a one-of-a-kind find a washlet seat, <laughs> a Japanese version of a bidet. So all manner of things. And obviously this speaks to, I think, one, the volume of material in the ocean, two, the time you've spent on the ocean and studying it. But I wonder, will you... Let's turn the discussion now, because I realize here we are about 10 minutes in, we haven't yet spoken about your background, the book you've written. So let me start maybe with you as a human being, if I may ask you, I know this is maybe one of the hardest questions we're ever <laughs> presented with answering, but who are you? Well, I'm an example of what can happen when a person is allowed to grow up in an environment of freedom freedom to develop, because certainly I was not programmed for a career. I didn't have a model to follow. My father was everything from a bootlegger during the Prohibition by being shanghaied onto a rum-running boat in Ensenada Harbor and taking rum from Cedros Island to La Jolla to a radio announcer, the first radio announcer to do a weather report. He had his own barometer and weather station and the first announcer to do a Spanish language broadcast in our local area. And he became then married my mother who was connected with an oil company. And one of the subsidiary companies made elemental sulfur from excess petroleum gas was the Hancock Chemical Company, which is my first job was landscaper at the Hancock Chemical Company. So I didn't have an example to follow of someone who stuck to a particular path. In the days before television, our after dinner fun was to go into the laboratory. My father had built at the house and do chemical experiments. And he had a glass blowing laboratory where we could make our own test tubes. That sounds dangerous and fascinating. Yeah, but it teaches you how to be careful. Right now, everything is virtual. And so when people actually get to touch things, they don't know how to be careful. It's important that people have hands-on experience. And we're so concerned with liability and exposure that we really don't get the kind of hands-on experience that you need in order to be careful with things. So people are constantly becoming injured by not knowing how to handle things. So yeah, I mean, that's who I am. I'm a person who was able to follow his intuition and follow his desires in a way that most people couldn't, not only because of the example of my parents, but also because of the example of my grandfather who started a large chemical company, the Hancock 
oil company, which is one of the largest independents in the West, and had the resources to where I didn't have to worry about earning a living as a young person. So pressure, I certainly didn't get a large allowance. I wasn't given money to throw around, but I didn't have to worry about getting along in life. And that's led you to a life on the ocean, studying the ocean, working to conserve and protect that, and not just the ocean, but life itself, right? I read your book, Plastic Ocean, how a sea captain's chance discovery launched a determined quest to save the oceans. And it opened my eyes to a lot of things. I wonder if you'll tell me, please, why did you write this book? Who did you write it for? And what did you want it to do for them? Well, a book of that nature is a kind of document that concretizes one's work in a way that's a reference for other people. And what we've done in Plastic Ocean is formalize the creation of a new field of science. There was no field of plastic pollution research prior to my pushing that need onto the scientific community. Others had preceded me in discovering plastics in the ocean, but it was just a footnote. As a matter of fact, people who had an interest in it were discouraged from pursuing it. It wasn't considered real science. It was, it's not natural history. It's not a natural thing. You're looking at something anthropogenic that is just litter, and you can't be a scientist of litter. You know, this is just not a topic that is going to propel you towards a Nobel Prize. So in writing Plastic Ocean, what we sought to do was to, both my co-author and myself had done work in plastics, her in a terrestrial setting, uh, working with plastic substrates for orchids. You know, when you grow an orchid, you really don't want dirt. Dirt has organisms in it and orchids are very fragile. So what you want is a sterile medium. It's mostly an air growing plant. And you don't need to suck nutrients out of the soil for an orchid. You just need some place for it to sit in. And so she had gotten a grant from the USDA to experiment with different plastics, waste plastics, as a substrate for orchids. And what she found out was, to her surprise, that plastics are not inert. So another reason for writing the book was to demonstrate that because we are part of the plastic age, that we touch plastic. As a matter of fact, what I've said is, Next to sleep, the most common activity that consumes our time is unwrapping things wrapped in plastic. That's what we do most of the day. Yeah, well, and, and on that point, by the way, if I may just jump in, I wish that was one of the things that blew my mind is that the packaging industry is the third largest industry in the world, as you write, after energy and food, right? right. I had no idea. No, and it's the major plastic pollutant. Over half of the plastics are single-use, throwaway packaging plastic. Yeah, in some cases, which the packaging is more valuable than what's inside. <laughs> oh, and I did a calculation in the, you remember before phones destroyed the camera industry? Yep. We had little chips for our cameras that we would put in. And of course, those were very popular at places like Costco. And I did a calculation of the container that Costco had put one of these little chips in and it was hundreds of times the volume and hundreds of times the weight of the actual chip. So not only is the package more valuable in many cases, it also weighs hundreds of times more than the thing that it's packaged. Yeah, you're talking about like the SD card or the memory card? Yeah. Correct. 
Yeah, the little SD cards were easy to pocket, so they make this big thing so you can't rip them off. But that particular need is we're we're being exposed to so much packaging in, in many ways as a false need, but also as a need for capitalism as it globalizes because you can have the cheapest labor market as far away from your consumer as possible and yet have that product arrive in a pristine condition at the centers of civilization because it's wrapped in a vapor barrier and a moisture barrier that preserves its newness from thousands of miles away. Yeah. I want to go back for just a moment to something you said when you were searching for a substrate to grow orchids. And you mentioned that plastics, one of the things that you and your co-author learned was that plastics are not inert. What does that mean? And why does that matter? I got off onto that side topic there because I wanted to talk to you about all our exposures and the idea that these plastics carry no bio burden when it comes to our contact with them, that they're not going to invade our bodies. They're not going to pollute us. You're saying that's what we believe as a society generally? That, that, well, we've entered the plastic age behind what I call a plastic curtain of ignorance. I've often said that a citizen of the Stone Age knew more about what to do with a stone than a citizen of the plastic age knows what to do with plastic. It's just a material we know nothing about. Most people don't know where it comes from, how it's made, what its characteristics are, and they also consider it inert. They think it's something, because it's so flexible, it doesn't get you dirty, it doesn't you know, rub off on you, it's used to keep things clean. We think of it as something clean, that it doesn't have properties that are likely to be harmful or dangerous or polluting. So the fact that my co-author found that cushion rubber in upholstered furniture killed her orchids, and that styrofoam accelerated the growth of her orchids was a major finding. The idea that not only people are affected by the chemicals in plastics, but plants are also affected by the chemicals in plastics. Because my research was leading down the road towards the human health effects. I've written a chapter in environmental medicine textbook about the human health effects of plastics. But what we now know is that it's not simply higher level organisms that are affected by plastics, but at the level of the plant, there's also physiological effects. So this book was to be able to break through that plastic curtain of ignorance with the information about how plastics are affecting the biosphere, how they affect us, they affect plants, we now know that they're affecting all systems. My latest paper was Invasion of the Biosphere by Synthetic Polymer, published in the official journal of the Chinese Society of Oceanography to get their attention. And what we now know is that there's no organism on the planet that is not affected by plastics, that it's the first item to precipitate out of the atmosphere on new volcanic islands, which used to be spiders. Spider webs would be wafted into the upper atmosphere by wind currents. They'd be carried by the jet stream and precipitated out on new volcanic islands. And so the first creatures that scientists would find on new volcanic islands were spiders. Before that happens now, we've got synthetic fibers from our polyester clothing precipitating out of the atmosphere. So the purity of the water cycle, the idea that evaporation takes place, that that purifies the water and then it precipitates 
out of clouds, as long as the atmosphere through which it precipitates is not acidic, it doesn't become acid rain, and it purifies our water for consumption. Now those water droplets precipitating as rain or snow have been found to contain nanoplastics, and we'll talk a little bit more later about my new institute, which is dedicated to the study of those nanoscale plastics. Now, this was something that, it kind of freaked me out, honestly, learning more about plastics and its connection, of course, with so many different chemicals. One of the things that you write in the book is that some people believe there are at least 50,000 different kinds of plastics and all the different, you know, chemicals that go into it is not a simple thing. As you're saying, it's not just a clean, you know, like a sterile, harmless thing. And it is pervading the biosphere, as you say, things like I learned from your book that 95% of Americans have traces of BPA in their urine. You know, like you're saying, this is all throughout. And one of the things that I found really remarkable is how it's easy to think. And, and I'm thinking now of Abby, you know, my 16-year-old who has an interest in science. And as I understand it, like a pretty grim view of the future, which I think is pretty common for youth today, many people today. And quite accurate, I might add. Yeah, as we're headed, right? And so I think it's easy. I'm just doing my best to remember my own youth that to be born into a place and a time and to see things as they are as best I can and kind of think they've always been this way or they will always be this way and to forget, no, there was a time. I mean, yeah, we know there was, of course, there was a time before plastic. There was a time before human beings. I mean, we get that intellectually, but to understand that there are some factors and forces that led to this and that hold it in place. And you talk about a Time Magazine article back in 1955 that was one of these turning points probably in our society, right? Will you talk a little bit about like, how did we get to a place where it's believed that, you know, plastic is this wonderful thing because of how sterile, how convenient, how cheap it is. How did we get here? And then I want to talk about your institute and I want to talk about what each of us can do to create a better future. Well, the article you're talking about was called Throwaway Living. That's crazy that that's the title. <laughs> yeah. Throwaway Living was a seminal piece with an iconic photograph by Peter Stackpole of a family, a nuclear family, the father, the mother, and I forget if it was a daughter or the son, but they were standing by a waste bin and throwing disposable items into the air around them so that you saw this photograph of all these things, disposables, floating in the air and the trash can overflowing. And the article's thesis was, this is post-World War II, this is part of the peace dividend, when women were getting washing machines and everything was becoming more convenient, that she no longer needed to even load the washing machine. That was too much of a choice. She could just throw the dishes away. This was a new liberation of the housewife. That was the thesis of the article, was to liberate. It was actually, a what I consider it a women's lib article, because the concept was that the housewife would be liberated and have more time to spend on her family, rather than just doing the chores around the house, if she would adopt the throwaway lifestyle. And of course, that must have been a highly desirable concept for the overburdened housewife, who was expected to do the dishes every night and to restack them and, and to prepare the meals. And this nuclear family concept, which is still fondly memorialized by certain members of our political establishment, 
even though it's long since disappeared for the most part. This concept of throwaway living and the liberation of the mother so that she could be a more conscious part of the nuclear family and devote more of her time to her children and her husband you know, in ways other than just doing the chores around the house. This propelled the creation of the TV dinner. Now, we had, in my youth, TV trays. They were special trays that snapped together that you put a TV dinner on. A TV dinner was an aluminum tray that you put in the oven that had three compartments, generally three, could have more or less, but it would have the main course, which might be some slovenly sliced turkey and gravy in one compartment, some mashed potatoes in one compartment, and some corn on the cob, you know, taken off the cob in the other compartment. And you would unwrap this aluminum cover and put it on your TV tray and have dinner sitting in front of the television. And this concept of convenience has grown now beyond all bounds. Beyond any of us could have imagined the throwaway now is walking down the street. It's no longer the TV dinner set on a tray watching the TV. It's having your earphones, your earbuds in with your phone on, with your power bar being munched with the wrapper thrown down on the street. And that's what we're finding now is all these wrappers for things that are eaten on the run. I was so surprised to find that one of my crew members who was on a voyage, just bringing some students out and we stopped at the dock for lunch and made sandwiches and the young person's comment was wow real food and to me a sandwich was you know not really real food but compared to a power bar and a wrapper a sandwich is real food so there's a whole new lifestyle out there that depends on very easy to litter no one's going to carry these wrappers around in their pockets all day till they find a bin as they're moving and grooming through life so this is showing up everywhere now, and that Life magazine article, which, you know, in those days we didn't get our social mores from television like we do today. Our social mores were communicated through print material, like Life magazine, Time, U.S. News, and World Report, a lot of magazines that no longer exist. And that article in 1955, so it would have been, you know, a decade after the end of the war, was the peace dividend, in a way, from the prosperity we enjoyed as a society after concluding that episode in our history. Yeah, and speaking about the war, about World War II as well, like understanding, of course, that this machine, this engine of production the United States had become to create the equipment required the planes and the tanks and the munitions required to win the war, it wasn't like those things just went dormant and we went back to normal, right? Instead, as you point out, that these things get repurposed and applied for consumer production. And now creating these things, you're talking about the washing machines and the dishwashers and the vacuum cleaners and this kind of thing that had the promise of making life so much better. But as is so often the case, there are unintended consequences, right? Like you're saying with these packages. And one of the things that you said that I thought was just so, it was really insightful in its brevity was about the, it was a statement about what makes in this era, what makes the investor smile, makes the environmentalist cry <laughs> or something like that. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, repurposing assembly line production 
occurred in the war itself as we changed from cars to tanks. So the idea that, you know, these assembly lines can be retooled is still going to be an important demand for environmentalists in the future because we're going to demand retooling a lot of what's being produced today. So that's an important point to make that we still need to be able to do this kind of radical retooling for our future. It's a very important part of the desideratum that I'm sure we'll talk about as the interview progresses. But the quantity of goods is really the crux that has to be dealt with here. Because these productive corporations were so productive and made so much stuff, it had to be produced in such a way that it wouldn't be the end product. It wouldn't last a lifetime. Then those assembly lines would have to shut down. So this concept, which was elaborated by Vance Packard in his book, The Wastemakers, in that era, was that we would have what has been termed planned obsolescence, that we would program destruction into the goods so that they would have to be recreated. And going along with that, the advertising agency gave us conspicuous consumption so that we had to be defined by our product. People find their souls in their products. They define themselves by, I'm a Starbucks person, or I'm a Gap person, or I wear Nike. This is the soul of a human being that we're talking about, how they define themselves. And because that oppressive closeness of our products to ourselves, because they have to be constantly recreated, we're constantly having to buy them again, we can't fix them. It's no longer really built. There's been a kind of a pushback in repair shops being recreated on a community level with bring your stuff in. We're going to find people here that can help you with your microwave and so on and so forth. But for the most part, objects today are not repairable. They are simply thrown away and replaced. And that's part of this planned obsolescence, this hyper productivity, which means that we have hyper waste. And that is my issue, the hyper wasting of our research. Yeah. And that statement, by the way, I found it the way it was worded in the book, which was more eloquent than what I said. You write, in this topsy-turvy world, what cheers the investor brings the environmentalist to tears. That's right. Although my tears are shed for other things normally than products. But that is sad that we have productivity that does not go towards society's benefit as a whole. It goes towards particular interests. Until we're able to create a human being that is vision society as a whole subject to change for the better through our productive apparatus, until that productive apparatus can be retooled to produce benefits for the whole of society, then we will not have the ability to rein in this massive pollution, not only by plastic, but by carbon, it's causing climate change, and by industrial chemicals, which are poisoning us, and which your daughter will be challenged to live a longer life than her mother because of these chemicals that are assaulting without her permission. Yeah, no, I, I know that's true. And you also point out in the book that we are faced with a fundamental contradiction, that the economic system that has brought us fabulous wealth and unprecedented growth can't give us as a basic return on our investment of lives, labor, and loyalty, a healthy planet. So we're faced with this paradox of this economic system that's demanding perpetual growth based on finite resources. And in a way, 
this conversation, your work gives me hope because first of all, it's starting a conversation. I know action leads to change that what precedes action is often speaking and thinking, right? Hopefully. <laughs> and as more people become aware and more people engage in this dialogue and people become aware of concepts like planned obsolescence and going, oh my goodness, there were people who made a decision. Now there was a logic for it, but it's not a logic that is serving us as a species is serving, you know, the rest of what lives in this planet with us. And we have a choice now to create a new way of living and being and relating. And so that gives me hope that first of all, when we can identify a concept that we're living inside that we previously might've been ignorant to, and now we have the ability to make a new choice that gives me hope. We've been talking about this since the sixties, you know, consciousness raising, uh, right? Creating consciousness amongst a new historical subject. We are subjects of our history. We are the people living in the history that has been dealt us. We're caught in the trade winds of our times to use a nautical expression, which I often use. And the awareness of that, of where we are in history, of what our times are, what is the institutional structure that creates the history that we're living and how we can become aware of that and change it as a whole for the benefit not only of ourselves but of the planet. I'm developing conceptually, philosophically, my work has as a part apart from the techniques of working on nanoplastics and that is understanding how there's been a shift from the historical agent of change from the human to the non-human world. Previously, those who were identified as the change makers were those who were exploited the most, who had the absolute need and could not stand another day of the way that they were being treated, the conditions they were being exposed to. They organized, they created unions, they created organizations to demand an eight-hour day healthcare, of benefits, retirement, things that the agents of change that created the world we live in today, which now are, have actually been pushed back quite a bit, were human. And those agents of change that have been pushed back largely on the basis of the success of the economy. The economy has expanded. People have been able to afford conveniences. And the demand for more stuff has replaced the demand for a different world. That Demand for a different world now has been taken up by nature herself. She can't be bought off. You can't give a hurricane a higher wage and make it go away, nor can you nuke it, as our commander-in-chief wanted to do. So we have a new agent, a new historical agent, which whether or not you believe in Gia, whether or not you believe that nature has a soul, that it's acting in a conscious or semi-conscious way, you still have an entity that is acting as if it were a human that is pissed off, that is mad, won't take it anymore, and is unleashing unheard of in history, unheard of disasters on the human population and on nature herself. She's erupting in a tremendous show of distaste for the system that exists in today's and she will settle the score whether or not we take her 
instruction and advice and her direction towards change, whether or not we embrace that and make changes that can settle her down, she will settle down. She will settle the score. But that is a new historical phenomenon, the shift from the agents of change being humans, because we are now totally absorbed in this system. A Chinese communist wants more stuff, the same way an American capitalist wants more stuff. In fact, they cooperate to make more stuff. And a lot of it is throwaway, planned obsolescent junk. So there's really no difference between a Chinese communist and American capitalist when it comes to our system of production and consumption. And that is now uniting the world in a way that will lead and has led to natural disaster. And natural disaster now looms as the force that will demand change in the society as a whole. It won't be, shall we say, the people in the world who are most exploited. This is often termed by philosophers as the necrocene. We're killing so many people with our pseudo wars, which are just really product testing exercises. We're killing people through the neglect. The population is such that life doesn't matter anymore. When I was a child, if a person died, it was a big deal. Front page in the newspaper, there was a death in your town. Now, the deaths are massive and everywhere and every day. So some philosophers have called our era the necrosis for the amount of death that's going on. That's pretty but grim. That will accelerate with nature's own rebellion against our status quo. So the consciousness that we're talking about raising that you and I are having a discussion about now that has animated your life's work is indeed the most important thing we can do at the present time is to bring that awareness that we have a whole system that is now worldwide that cannot go on. It's peaked. It's brought us those benefits to society, as you quoted from the book, that were unheard of, and yet has brought, if not us, has brought Mother Nature to tears. Yeah. And one of the things that, so just a moment ago, I mentioned that this conversation in one way gives me hope. There are many other ways in which it concerns me deeply and one of those is that awareness alone, facts and data are not enough, as we know, to shift people's behavior, to elevate their consciousness, right? And you share what to me was a really powerful story about when you had gone and discovered, basically, you weren't the first to see it, but in some ways you were truly the first to see it, <laughs> what we now call the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, right? And you brought some really careful facts and data back and met someone, I believe his name was Grig and you shared with him, right? But he told you something that really kind of changed the way you went about what you were doing. And I wonder if you'll speak to this because I think this opens the door to how do we change? What can we do if awareness isn't enough, but maybe we can start with that story. Sure. Ricky, Greg, you know, I've Graduated at the top of my class. I was second in line at graduation in spite of the danger of us disrupting the graduation. So you did you did graduate with those open toes? I could have gone handles. to Harvard. I could have, you know, I could have gone anywhere I wanted. But there's no surf in Harvard. There's surf in San Diego. So I went to UC San Diego, and that's right next to Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And one of the heroes there was Ricky Gregg. He was a surfer. I actually saw him there at the, in the Graduate Students Union, and he surfed out there at La Jolla Shores. And he was the first 
surfer scientists to go and live in an underwater environment. They built a habitat at Scripps underwater, offshore there. This is Sea Lab? It was kind of a Sea Lab thing, and he lived there for a period of time. And so he was a PhD and someone as a surfer that I could respect. And so when I made this discovery, I thought he'd want to know about it, you know. So I knew he was attending a conference at Scripps on how Scripps developed out of Navy research, which most oceanographic institutes, including Woods Hole, are really deeply connected to the Navy and warfare. But they were honoring all these luminaries in the oceanographic field at Scripps, and he was one of them. And so during a break, I took him my data, and he was totally unimpressed and said, just because there's a lot of plastic out there doesn't make any difference. You've got to show harm. No one's going to care at the UN if you show them that there's a bunch of plastic in the ocean. You've got to show it's doing some damage. You've got to show harm. And so that was a revelation to me that someone who I could respect, who was a PhD, who was also a surfer, <clears throat> couldn't be awoken by the data itself. And we talked about that too. You can't imagine anything good coming from plastic pollution unless you really try hard to think up something weird. Yeah, you got to get creative. So like more places for flying fish to lay their eggs on one biologist at the National Wildlife Service. But I'm sure somebody on like the National Plastics Council could. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or they'll seize upon anyone that will come up with anything that they like. But data itself does provide insight into what's happening. And it does raise an alarm. And for scientists to step back from their responsibility as human beings and say, no, we're just looking at the data. We'll leave the policy to the experts. That's no longer the case. Science on the basis of its own accomplishments is now changing from only about the is to the ought. Is what is happening implies what ought to happen. When we see massive pollution, we ought to do something about it. The is is no longer separated from the ought, even in science. Most papers now, when you read a scientific paper, talk about what ought to be done to deal with these problems that they're elucidating in their paper. So that science based on its own accomplishments is coming into a moral position that it didn't have in the past or that it tried to avoid or it tried to push back against getting values in science, this idea of a value-free science, which was never truly valid. Scientists always had values and always pursued things that mattered to them, and mattered to their funders and the people that supported their research. So there's no such, never was value-free science, but now, based on its own accomplishments, science is coming to the realization that its work does contain an ought that things need to happen. And that's why climate change scientists like Hansen, who I know, I've ridden on a bus with him in Amsterdam when we lectured at the Club of Rome, they're giving up on data only as a way to deal with problems. They're speaking out. They're writing letters. You've got all these medical doctors now writing a letter about how to deal with the COVID virus. You've got climate scientists writing letters and making manifestos. You've got folks in my field dealing with the bisphenol A, writing manifestos about BPA and other chemicals involved with the plastics. So the ought that was divorced from the is 
in science has now sort of come back to haunt it and make scientists feel somewhat guilty if they don't address solutions to problems. Yeah. You know, for my part, I'm glad to know of the shift because I know that none of us is free from bias, even when we do our best to. So to actively embrace that, the responsibility inherent in learning something, making an observation, right? And part of in that story that you just mentioned about sharing what you had learned when you discovered this great Pacific garbage patch with Mr. Grigg is that it's probably understated about the severity with which, you know, the ocean is polluted is really distressing to me personally. And I realize maybe it was some of the way you said these things about, you know, here's probably our most pristine environment on the planet being polluted by what we value least. <laughs> and there's some kind of cosmic paradox in that, that again, I think makes sense. But other things that you included that I didn't know before about, you know, that I'd never heard it described that the ocean is the womb of life really on earth at least, right? And this idea that all of the landmass of the earth could fit in the Pacific Ocean alone. And further, the idea that the ocean belongs to all of us, that literally, I don't know how you worded it, and if I understand that correctly, because I understand offshore nations have 200 miles out, but beyond that, the ocean truly belongs to everyone and no one. If I went to a map maker, a purveyor of maps, and asked for a map that would show me the exclusive economic zone, which is 200 miles from the coast of any rock or island or coastline, so that I could get a feel for how much of the ocean was outside of any kind of governance from any individual nation. And he couldn't produce that map for me. So I started searching around and looking and finally found something that corresponded to that 200-mile exclusive economic zone around all the land masses owned and by any country. And it still leaves virtually all the garbage patches untouched. So I became the ambassador for the garbage patch. I have a little hat which was produced by China when they spilled a bunch of pellets on the coast in Hong Kong. A typhoon knocked a bunch of containers full of plastic pellets off of a ship. It was captain made a bad decision to sail during a typhoon, and they covered the beaches in Hong Kong. And so China Plast, that makes the biggest plastic pellet manufacturer in China, bought vacuum cleaners and sifters and gave a little hat that said Marine Ambassador. And I was there when the cleanup was going on, and I took one of those hats. I thought, you know, I'm the Marine Ambassador for the largest part of the ocean, because these garbage patches are 40% of the world ocean, and they're not really the province. They have no spokesperson. They have no one from any nation going, you're polluting my garbage patch, because no nation owns those garbage patches, and yet they're 40% of the world ocean. So I am self-appointed ambassador speaking out on behalf of those creatures, which are considered desert creatures, they're the deserts of the ocean. They're not where fishermen go to exploit fish resources. They're not where the krill harvesters go to get your EPA, DHA fish oil so that you can have as good heart health as an Alaskan indigenous person. You get no one standing up for them on either economic grounds or political grounds. They are vast wastelands in the ocean, which are now becoming sea filled through no fault of their own, just because of the way the currents converge this debris. So I've become an ambassador for the largest 
phenomenon, atmospheric phenomenon on Earth, which is these high-pressure systems that hover over these oceanic deserts and the creatures that live there, which, although they're desert creatures, although they don't have a tremendous economic value, they deserve to live. They deserve to have biodiversity. They don't deserve to be invaded by barnacles on crates. They deserve to have their own integrity maintained, and no one is speaking up for them. Yeah. No, I'm grateful that you are, and thank you for sharing that, and thank you for that work that you're doing. Okay, so I'm running us out of time here. I'm so curious, and there's so much more that I want to talk about, but I want to be sure that we do talk about your institute, the new institute and the work that you're doing now. Will you tell me about that? Sure, I, I'm happy to, and I'm definitely looking for support because this is a new field, and we've built new fields of science, and now they've caught on, and now what we've we found out is that we are having a problem with our drinking. Drinking water is under threat. Not only our, our fish, we knew fish were eating plastic. We knew it was causing birds to choke and die, but we didn't know that how much it was affecting us through our drinking water, through these this really bad invention of the plastic tea bag, releases thousands and thousands of particles in each cup of tea. But the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution Research was founded because our original institution, Algolita Marine Research and Education, could no longer afford to do the kind of time-consuming, expensive equipment research that is required to determine the amount of plastics in drinking water. Now, scientists, in order to get legislation, in order to get policy changes, require an agreed-upon protocol. And there is no agreed-upon protocol for finding how many plastics are in your drinking water. So we've joined the impetus for starting our new institute, the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution Research, was the fact that the government of the state of California became concerned when they were informed that plastics were invading our drinking water. And they asked all the laboratories, not only the ones doing drinking water analysis, but sewage treatment facilities and just research labs to come up with a protocol or a method for determining how much plastic is in our drinking water. So a joint powers authority called the Southern California Coastal Water Research Project assembled 34 different labs, ours included, at that time it was Algoleda, to develop this methods evaluation regime where we would try a certain method and evaluate it and with a view towards giving the state of California an agreed upon method for determining how much plastics is in our drinking water. So it became apparent that Algolita, who is focused on education, focused on single-use plastics, focused on analysis of plastic in our local beaches and in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and I was looking at what we would call microplastics, which kind of cut off at a third of a millimeter, would not have the resources to be able to be part of this elaborate methods development study. And so we branched off. One of the people who started the study for Squirp, Shelley Moore, who has the same last name as me, but we're not related, she left that institute she'd been at for 25 years to help me found this because we both realized the critical importance of giving good data to policymakers. There will be pushback, as you said, from the American Plastics Council, the Society of the Plastics Industry, the California Film Extruders, and all these professional associations pay big bucks to the American Chemistry Council to combat any attempt to regulate plastics. But 
the issue is becoming so profound in the fact that it's now invaded the very water that we drink that the legislators want to do something. The state of California passed an assembly bill demanding that by October of next year, we come up with a method so that they can regulate the amount of plastics in our drinking water, set a limit on the amount of plastic, which is sad that we have to think about allowing some in and just we're just going to send a limit on how much. But that's the kind of thing that regulators do. They take the worst first and they try to push back against the worst polluters. And this is now becoming one of the worst polluters. So our institute, the Moore Institute for Less Pollution Research, has just obtained a grant a uh, wonderful funder gave us the money we needed to buy very expensive microscopes that could look at this nano scale and use fluorescence to determine the plastics, to dye the plastics and have them stand out at these very small size clouds. So we're involved now. The director of the study has just written us and said that coronavirus has retarded their date for delivery of the product of our research. So that gives us a little more time, which is good since we're setting up a lab now. We're just hopefully today going to be delivered our fume hood, which allows us to do extraction of fish tissue under a vacuum so that any toxic gases that come off are filtered through a carbon filter. And those expenses are high, and this research is not feel-good research. There's folks working with whales that need to have work done with whales. There's folks working with albatross. We need to have work done with albatross. There's folks working with climate change. We need to have work done with climate change. But plastic pollution is kind of the poor stepchild of all these other movements which yield a kind of feel-good result. Our results are just tentative and so far not produced a feel-good kind of result that, you know, we can say we're going to like these people that sell plastic bracelets to clean up plastic saying your plastic bracelet will clean up 100 pounds of trash, that's a feel-good thing. They make good money doing that. It's actually jewelry salesmen that run that project. They came up with the idea, well, if we make a bracelet and clean up 100 pounds of trash, then people will buy our bracelet. So they get the volunteers to clean up the trash. and then. The, but yeah, the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution has a wonderful small demonstration lab now, the size that we can have three or four scientists that work in there. But eventually our goal is to have this be something that we do worldwide activists, citizen science, you know, I come from a citizen science background, and the Surfrider Foundation's Blue Water Task Force, where we looked at bacterial contamination. Now we're looking at plastic pollution, and we want to do that worldwide. We want to have the ability to have a citizen scientist send us a sample of their air, a sample of their water, and have us look at it, and then they go to their legislators. Plastic pollution is not a point source problem. You don't find the bad guy and fix it. Every one of us, through our clothing, through the stuff that we consume, is part of the problem. And the solution will be a world historical revolution in the consciousness of the individual to stop polluting with plastic. And that consciousness can only happen when we have this data and have this information widely spread. And we attempt to, we will attempt to do that with the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution Research. Reach out the citizen scientists around the world so that they can present their legislators with the data they need to make change happen. And of course, as you and I are both aware, we raise the consciousness of those who are dealing with matters of import. Yeah. I'm grateful that you're doing this work. And I know that policy and legislation are ultimately going to be an essential part of this. And I know that as you do as well, that there's also an inescapable individual 
component as well, right? For each of us. And I thought you articulated this really beautifully in the book where you say, as far as I'm concerned, each purchase should be a moral decision that takes into account the life cycle of all the materials in your shopping basket, both their origins and their fate. So really looking with this awareness, even when we buy something, how is it sourced as best we can tell? Where will it go when I'm done with it? Whatever that looks like. And maybe this leads to the final part of this section here where what can we do? What can, I mean, that's one thing we can do. We can become more conscious consumers. I hate the fact, you know, that we're, we even call ourselves consumers or we're called consumers. Well, we all have to consume. I mean, you had breakfast. I know that for a fact. You <laughs> yes. Yes. So what else can we do? Well, you know, I have a bumper sticker. Bumper stickers are great. I have a bumper sticker that says pre-cycle, P-R-E, pre-cycle. Think before you buy. Mm. Recycling's not working. Recycling has been sold to us as a solution when, as a matter of fact, there is no recycling infrastructure worth the name. We have a very tiny percentage of plastics being recycled, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the very best estimate. And that's probably going down now with the COVID throwaway masks and gloves and gowns. So we have a situation in which we, as individuals, are being asked to solve a social problem. And we can't do that alone. We have to change institutions and we have to do it with a view towards saving ourselves. So the feel good in this movement is the feel good of being a conscious consumer. The feel good is why we have a bring your own shop in our office at Algolita where people come and refill jars that they bring in with their soaps, their shampoos, their toothpaste, their products that are refillable so they don't have to constantly have a throwaway container that every time they purchase a product has no end game. We want an end game for everything. We want a circular economy. We want a steady state economy. We talked earlier about growth. The answer to growth is steady state. What does steady state mean? It means that you have unlimited creativity within a steady state, within a circular economy that has as its limits, the natural materials that we work with. We're throwing away millions of dollars worth of precious metals every time we throw away our electronic waste. You know, The people around the world are getting new phones, getting new computers, and those old ones are not being recycled. And instead, blood mines are mining not just gold, but rare earths, where Children are forced labor for our computers and our phones. We can't continue to accept that situation. We need to mine our landfills. We need to bring back those resources. The true, as I've often said, the true innovators, the heroes of the economy, will be those who develop new ways for extracting materials from our waste. Uh, I speak to the Society of the Plastics Industry, to the California Film Extruders and Converters Association. And when I speak to them, I ask anybody whose business in the plastics field is recycling to raise their hand and no hands go. There is no, I said, you need to elevate these people. You need to give free membership to your organization to recyclers. You need to elevate these people on a pedestal. The real heroes of the future will be those engineers and scientists and entrepreneurs that discover how to truly mine our waste and make it return. 
We have no problem with this in agriculture. We absolutely know how to compost. We absolutely know how to take green waste and use it. We know what to do with our biomass. We just haven't got to that level with our resources. And that's why <coughs> the concept of cradle to cradle is important. It's this circularity and we need to think of technical resources as we do agricultural resources, that there's a nutrient cycle in technology. The nutrients that feed technology need to come from the products that technology discards and wastes. So we can create this circular economy using an agricultural model if we have the genius to do it. And that genius is not being required as there's no university you can go to and get a degree in recycling. There's no academic path towards the geniuses being built by our educational system that will mine our technological resources and create the new compost, the technological compost that will feed our industrial capability. That's the desideratum. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. The last thing that I want to ask in this section here, and then if there's anything else you feel is important to cover that we haven't, I definitely want to make time for that. But I want to ask you specifically about extended producer responsibility. And that was not a term that I was familiar with prior to reading your book. But again, it's one of these things that gives me hope where here's a concept that many people might have previously been ignorant to or ignorant of. And yet, if this were more broadly practiced, it could have, as I understand it, a huge impact on this plastic pollution issue that we're facing. Will you talk about what is extended producer responsibility and why, why does it matter? Well, just think about a dairy farm for starters. You know, milk cows produce manure and gas. And that producer of the milk has a responsibility to deal with that manure and those gases produced by those animals. And they're finding ways to do it. They're finding ways for anaerobic digestion finding ways to make that manure part of their circular economy, part of their extended producer responsibility. So as I said before, agriculture is leading the way in extended producer responsibility. Farms are doing more composting. They're starting to use their materials on site. We need to have this kind of a concept be part of the entire industrial sector. The entire industrial sector needs to prove to society that it has zero waste. If you're not for zero waste, how much waste are you for? You have to be for zero waste. The zero waste movement is embraced by people in the plastic pollution field because it recognizes that there is truly no such thing as waste. Everything is a resource waiting to be recovered. We can recover resources if we simply don't trash them, if we keep them as separate as we can. We have to use extended producer responsibility to create reincarnation of those products made by the producer. If you want to think of it in those kind of anthropomorphic terms, these products need to be reincarnated. There's many technological ways in which this can be done, but that cost must not be borne by the municipality, by the local government. Right now, we're shifting. This is called an externality, a shift. When the trash is created by the producer of the throwaway product, it's cleaned up by who? It's cleaned up by the street sweeper. It's cleaned up by volunteers. It's cleaned up by the municipal recycling facility where the 
products that are put in the bins are sorted, but the markets are failing. The industry has not created those markets. If they can't, if it's toxic and it can't be recycled, they shouldn't make it. And if it's not that toxic and can be recycled, they need to have that infrastructure in place before being allowed to produce that product in such quantity that it is a societal need. Society, we talked a little bit about how people are involved in conspicuous consumption, how they want this latest. The idea that somehow people would break down the door to get a new TV in a Walmart or that they'll wait in line for the new Apple phone over a period of several nights to be the first one in to get the new Apple phone. These are people realizing their inner self with their product. So before that product should be allowed to exist, Apple should say, this new Apple X is made by Apple Y. We are going to make the new product out of the old product, the new Toyota out of the old Toyota. Toyota is trying to be zero waste. They're trying to use a lot of the old Toyota parts to make the new Toyota. Computers need to be able to be disassembled and get the maximum utility out of the parts before they're discarded. The idea that somehow we're going to just grind everything up and get the good stuff out of it and the rest we're going to burn or do chemical recycling, this is not the vision we have for extended producer responsibility. The vision we have for extended producer responsibility is that they want their stuff back. They need to design it so they really want to get it back. So it makes economic sense. And that won't happen in an economy that rewards scofflaws. We reward the most criminal behavior in companies that are able to skate through the process by creating externalities for which they have no responsibility that don't have to pay for any end-of-life externalities so this is why we're looking to legislative bodies to begin extended pursuits of responsibility legislation and it's often been said i know you're not a californian but as california goes so goes the united states and as the united states goes so goes the world in many of these environmental initiatives and extended producer responsibility now is also a European model. And between Europe and California and hopefully the rest of the United States, we will have models that companies will be forced to adopt. So we're going to be up against this issue of profitability forever. And it's not going to be a simple solution. But sharing economy is a good model. The idea that responsibility is shared, wealth is shared. You don't have the most wealthy individuals in society as the happiest. There's plenty of studies pointing that out. We don't create the true human wealth, which is our own happiness, by being rich. What we need is a secure income that allows us to be free from want. And we can provide that for all the citizens of the world. We don't have to be hoarding. And so, yeah, those are my thoughts. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. And maybe just for a moment to give that a look. So to go back to that packaging, we talked about where Costco would sell the SD cards in the big blister pack and the little thing would be taken out and the packaging would be thrown away in a model where that manufacturer was practicing extended producer responsibility somehow between the retailer, but primarily on that manufacturer, they would have the responsibility for ensuring that that got reclaimed and repurposed Right. So that blister pack doesn't just go in a landfill or end up in the ocean somehow. And that's especially problematic with plastics because the polymer chain, when it's first created, is 
fairly uniform. The carbon backbone of the repeating polymer units is very uniform. Each time it's recycled, that uniformity is compromised. So that it's not possible to have, like we do with aluminum, steel, even newspaper, to have repeated recycling of the same thing and get a product that's able to be refilled and reused the way the original was. It's often a process known as downcycling, where something less uniform, where the need is for a resin that is less uniform, is produced rather than a product where the need is for a resin of high uniformity. So that requires a societal solution. It won't be the particular industry in the plastics field being responsible for every iteration of extended producer responsibility. It will have to be expanded to the entire industry as a whole. And that is a challenge when we are in competition. So I think I want to get this in as a thought that the enemy today is competition. And the answer is cooperation. We don't need the nations of the world competing against each other for market share or military hegemony. What we need is cooperations of the nations of the world to create an answer to Mother Nature's protest. And we won't get that through competition. No matter how many science fairs there are or how many spelling bees, the best and brightest will not get us out of this mess. It will have to be all of us that get us out of this mess. And Every time that you cooperate with another human being, that you cooperate with another organization, that a business cooperates with another business, that is progress towards a new concept of society. And that's why it's so important that the women's movement be accepted as a model for cooperation. A woman needs peace to raise a baby. A man wants to fight about things. There's a whole different thought process in a feminine economy versus a masculine economy. And there will be a whole different thought process in a feminine political system versus a masculine political system. And that's why it's so important that women are becoming prominent in politics because they are cooperators. They know how to talk to each other. I remember the book, Women Are From Venus, Men Are From Mars, you know. It's got a grain of truth in it in that the dominant aspect of male forcefulness that brought us to this point, which created, it must be said, technology to a large degree and the high standard of living, if you want to call excess consumption a high standard of living, is a masculine feature of the development of world history. It has been domination of nature, domination of business, domination of the populace. That will not get us out of this minute. The male principle has reached its zenith with our current political leadership. And I believe it is the last gasp of the male principle as a leadership model. And that is what gives me hope, is that we're seeing a lack of desire to be macho among young men. Young men today just don't impress me as being tough. And I think that is a sign for hope. Yeah. Captain Moore, I know we're, we're at the time that I had mentioned we would record for, and I understand you have other commitments this afternoon. I'm wondering if you would be willing to go a little longer for some questions, maybe 20 minutes. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, my time is good. I don't have anything for the next hour or something. Awesome. Well, thank you. Well, let me ask this before we transition to the enlightening lightning round. 
two questions. Is there anything, I know we've covered a lot, but is there anything we haven't covered that you want to? And then the other question that I have just to kind of set them up is, are you optimistic or what's your orientation toward the future? Yeah, well, let's combine those two into one because uh, what I'd like to talk about more is this concept of needing a positive end. Every interview that I do, the interviewer wants to be positive at the end. They're afraid of leaving the audience depressed and in a hopeless state because hopelessness leads to inaction, and we all know that action is, is important. But the ability to be critical is what has been lost in our current situation. The criticisms that we find are all criticisms that revolve around tweaking the status quo. They're not criticisms of the system as a whole. And until we have the ability to see this system as a point in history, as a system subject to change, as a whole dynamic way of living that can be changed towards a pacification of existence, we are struggling now. It's constant struggle. Life is a constant struggle for everyone these days. Even the rich have the struggle to maintain their wealth. So this constant struggle is not leading towards a pacification of existence. It's leading towards increased paranoia. It's leading towards purchasing of weapons. It's leading towards organizing for survival. It's leading towards a ability to live with abundance and at the same time, great fear of want. So we have these contradictions that are not susceptible to a positive spin. There is no positive spin for the situation we find ourselves in today. The situation we find ourselves in today is one in which things are getting worse fast. Not only have we accelerated our ability to produce things, we've accelerated our ability to destroy. And that's why I mentioned the term necrocene. We're not only destroying human life, we're destroying all life on the planet. And there is no way to spin that in an optimistic direction. We're headed for the abyss, and we can't leap over it with a genius technological invention. We're not going to have the winner of the science fair be the person that liberates us from our disastrous situation. That is not going to be one of the results of teaching for excellence. Excellence today means excellent at tweaking the system to make something that people will buy in mass quantities so that you can go on Shark Tank and ask for an offering of money so that you can increase making more junk to sell to people that don't really need it but are going to be made to want it by your presentation. So I personally don't like the demand that we constantly find reasons for hope in a hopeless situation. What we must demand is a break with the past, a break with the present, a new way of dealing with our situation. And it can't be by fixing what's wrong. It won't be by a return to a pseudo-democracy that never allowed for full participation. This situation worldwide is that we don't even want everyone who is tied to mass consumption to be able to determine our future. We need a kind of break 
with who we are. So I'm not going to be optimistic about who we are as human beings today. Who we are as human beings today is people who find our souls and our products, who people are tied to the consumptive model, people who want to break out with an entrepreneurial genius product that is going to get them rich, people who are going to invest in a stock that's going to soar. This is the people who we are today. And this is what will not break us free from our disastrous descent into Hades. And so please allow me to maintain a critical attitude, to be critical of the status quo, to not find any manifestation of today's reality that would liberate us from the current direction. I do not see it. I have mentioned that I see signs of hope in youth's gravitation towards cooperation, towards the feminine, towards acceptance of lifestyles that are outside the status quo. But when we say think outside the box, no one is really envisioning that box. When we say think outside the box, all those thoughts are inside the box. We've got to define that box better before we can think outside it. And that is my mission, to help us define this box that we're in. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. You doing okay? I'm doing great. I'm going to have another sip of my Okay. Again, this is a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. My aim for my part is to ask the question and for the most part, stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. So question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... <laughs> Life is like a smorgasbord of opportunities that were presented and from which we can choose. We have more choice today than ever before in history. We have more options than ever before in history. Our horizon is unlimited. So life is the crisis of fear of choosing something that will make you stuck. And that's why I think it is important to affirm that it's not likely that any person today will have the same job throughout their entire life. That it's a good thing that you can be in politics and be an actor or be in waste management and be a scientist or be a sailor and be a philosopher and a scientist and an educator. We need changeability of our functions within this society. And so life gives us this opportunity. Life today offers us many different options. What we need to do is fund it because kids are constantly being told, follow your dreams. Go with your passion. Well, you don't know what your passion is when you're 18 years old. You're being pushed into a passion. You're being forced to say, my passion is mathematics or my passion is the ocean. My parents used to tell me, the kid don't know what he wants. The kids don't know what they want. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And they'll only know what they want when they have the freedom to be exposed to all these infinite smorgasbord of opportunity, many of them wonderful. What we need is to have that guaranteed income, that guaranteed sustenance that allows people to find what they really want to do. Like universal basic income. I certainly supported Andrew Yang's concept 
I think he was the youngest thinking of all the presidential candidates. Although uh, I like the woman who was all about love too. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Okay. Thank you for that. Question number two, here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Very few people agree with me on the fact that facts in themselves contain values. You know, we had a, a problem with one of our presidents who was an attorney with the city involved in environmental law enforcement. And he wanted our organization to only talk about the facts and not talk about any value. But my position is that the facts in themselves contain values. If your house is a two-story house and you're upstairs and you smell smoke, you don't go, well, let's see if we can determine the temperature down on the first floor and see how hot it is. Oh, the smoke's getting hotter. Well, I wonder if there's actually flames or if there's something just smoking. Oh, the house is on fire. Well, I guess we should leave. You know, the fact that there's a problem points towards a solution. The facts in themselves contain values. There's no such thing as value-free thinking. And we still find that attitude amongst legislators, scientists, you name it, politicians. And then they argue about those facts that are never, ever agreed on. That's why you have people constantly saying, well, the intelligence isn't verified. The intelligence will never be verified. Nothing will ever be verified. But when you discover an obvious truth, there is a value associated with that obvious truth. You collect data, you collect data, you collect data, you analyze it out, then you come to see a pattern, you come to see an obvious truth, which in itself means that something needs to happen. And that is very hard for people to get to. Okay, thank you. Question number three. If you were required, just hypothetically, every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip, what would the shirt say? Zero waste. Okay. Number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? One Dimensional Man by Herbert Marcuse, my professor at UCSD. Why that book? It's the most profound exposition of our situation in the modern phase of history that we're in. Okay. Question number five. So obviously you've traveled an enormous amount. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I always carry a snorkel and a mask so that no matter where I am, I can dive in and look at what's underwater. I don't care if I'm in the mountains, I'll find a pool. I don't care if it's freezing, I won't stay in very long, but I've made it a practice to always investigate underwater, not just on the surface. Wow. In a uh, in hundred interviews, no one has ever given that answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? What I've started doing is eating more of my own homegrown produce, stop buying as much stuff from the store as I can. I find that with time, I, you know, I've been an organic gardener for 46 years. I started not only Algalita Marine Research and Education, but Long Beach Organic, which takes bacon lots and turns them into community gardens. And I started in 74 after we read Bruce Stout's book, The No Work Garden Book. And using mulch as ground cover to stop urban runoff is very important in creating a healthy ocean. So what I seek to do is create local economies. I believe there should be a local stock exchange. I believe someone who is 
a genius entrepreneur shouldn't have to go to Shark Tank to get an investment. He should go to the local stock exchange and find investors. Really, all the Securities and Exchange Commission does is make you state the risks to an investor that would invest in your company. You can state the risks to an investor that might invest in your company on a local level. And so what I do is I have a grower's certificate. The county agricultural commissioner comes once a year, inspects my produce, gives me a certificate, allows me to sell to passers-by. So on the weekends, I set up a table and my excess crops, I start a local economy, a local economy of my people on the block, people walking. You know, I live crossing the boat. There's a park between me and the boat. So there's a lot of folks walking there, recreating, bringing their dogs. And I talk to them about local production, about the value of organic produce and sell them. This week I'll have Kentucky Wonder pole beans. I'll have cucumbers. I grow a lot of herbs, moringa, allspice. I grow a lot of exotic fruits, chocolate pudding fruit, custard apple, the sapote blanco, sapote negro. So I'm proving that we can have this variety on the local level, that we can be you know, I have 71 years in this property. This is where I grew up. I've been around the world, and I've never found a better situation. I have my research vessel across the street, so I have my business there. I have my homegrown produce here in my yard. That's part of my business. So I fully believe that local economies is what will get us out of this mess. And transportation is the main reason for plastic packaging. So it's also the main reason for global warming. So if we get out of this idea that somehow we have to have things from far away, we now have the ability to put a factory in a container and take it to wherever the cheapest labor is. If we can do that, we can start those same factories right here in our own community with our own people and charge a reasonable price and make very advanced technical products without having these tremendous transportation costs and logistical nightmares that are embraced by the Amazon cult. So I think that for me is what I do and what I don't do. I try to be local, try to be self-sufficient, a concept which is so important now in COVID. It's like 46 years ago, I started organic farming and doing it locally. For those 46 years until the COVID crisis, I was looked at as kind of a coup. But now everybody wants to do it. You've got the gangster gardener from Compton teaching on Good Morning America how to plant a garden on the East Coast to the announcer there, the weatherman. <laughs> so uh, I'm no longer, that's part of being ahead of the curve, yep. is being an outcast until, you know, first they laugh at you, then they scoff, and eventually, you know, you become accepted yep. as a luminary. So you won't be accepted as a luminary when you start out, my dear. You know, I'm teaching out <laughs> your daughter. Yep. Uh, you will be laughed at and you will be pushed in another direction. But you will find that you will have ideas that you know will pan out and go ahead. Allow yourself to be ridiculed. It doesn't bother me. So many people fear ridicule. But if you have an income to sustain you, you can sustain yourself through ridicule. Well said. Thank you. Question number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American knew that plastics were not inert, that if it's on you, it's in you. These chemicals that are used to make the plastic are never 100% polymerized. 
there's always a residual monomer content in every plastic polymer, and those migrate from the polymer into you, into the surrounding environment. So even if you have 100% pure polyethylene or polypropylene, there are going to be some ethylene atoms in there and some propylene atoms in there that are capable of migrating out of that material. And so all your exposures to plastic are exposures to chemicals that you don't want in your body. And that's what I call drawing back the plastic curtain of ignorance, letting people know that these things are bioactive and you need to be aware of them. And you need to begin eliminating them from your lifestyle. Yeah. That was one of the things, by the way, that was remarkable about your book is learning that manufacturers aren't required to disclose what their products are made of and that they're protected under trade secrets in many cases. And that goes for just about every chemical. And all we've been able to do in the state of California with the Department of Toxic Substance Control is try to get legislation that will allow us to get the manifest of what chemicals they're shipping in from out of state. We can't find out what companies are using that are manufactured within the state of California, but we can force the companies to tell us what chemicals they're shipping in from out of state. And so that's one of the tactics we're using to find out what's in these plastics is finding what the companies ship in from out of state to add to their product. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, question number eight. I understand you and Sam, your partner, have been together for about four decades, maybe a little more. Going on five, yeah. So you'll be an authority on this next question. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Leave them alone. (laughs) Don't bother them when they screw up because they're going to screw up all the time as far as you're concerned. uh, You just got to clean up the mess they make if you don't like it. Don't force them to clean it up. Okay. I just did one this morning in the shower. So. <laughs> she put a plant in the shower and bathed her fern in the shower and it left all these leaves and all this dirt in the shower. And I was showering and shaving before the interview. And before I could do that, I had to clean up all this mess in the shower. But I'm not going to tell her about that. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I just did it. Sign of wisdom, I think. Okay, question number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? I'm terrible with money, I can tell you that right now. I've lost much more than I've made. Uh, That's coming from a family in which there was some resources. So I was never super careful with it. But I have friends that are, and I don't eat out. I don't buy a new car. I don't buy new clothes. I shop thrift or actually I don't even have to go to the thrift store anymore. I just go down the alley. People are throwing away. Clothes are throwaway items anymore. When people move, they don't take their clothes with them. They just leave them in the trash. In my personal life, I don't waste any money. But in terms of investing, I invest with my heart, not my head. So I invested in metabolics, which made marine degradable plastics. I lost my shirt. They went under. I invested in this company that was going to make the uh, biodegradable clamshells for McDonald's. They went bankrupt. I lost my shirt there. So when you're a first adopter, I talked about the courage to be ridiculed, but with money, that doesn't work. (laughs) When you get ridiculed with money, you lose your money. So I think what I've learned is, unfortunately, with money, that you need to be very careful with who you entrust your resources to. And I do that by investigating, you know, Say, for instance, my tax attorney is also a teacher of tax attorney law. So I like to work with people who also teach what they do that aren't just out there to exploit, that are there to 
let other people know how the system works. You know? As W.C. Fields said, there's a sucker born every minute, probably every second now, and those suckers are what's driving this throwaway economy. They're believing the advertising. And you've got to invest in such a way that the return on investment is not your only issue, but it's certainly got to be carefully considered when you do invest so that you don't lose your shirt, as I'm very capable of doing that. Okay. Thank you for that. All right. And then the final question, this one's a gimme. This is if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Well, you know, I answer emails, pretty much all of them. I mean, sometimes I get too many from people that haven't read my book with the questions that are answered in the book. And I'll just respond with, you know, read the book, but people can email me. I have a website. People can go on the website and go to the info section there. People can look at the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution Research. We've got a, this is something new, a QR code, I believe it is, that you can click on and donate. We would really appreciate it. We are spending way beyond our means. Uh, There again, there will be no return on investment with the Moore Institute if you invest in us. The return will be societal. It won't be monetary. So we're going to need funding. We're going to need some major help. And I'm going to have to present myself and our institute as something worthy of support. And the reward won't be a feel-good sticker that shows that you saved a whale or that you cleaned up a beach or that you made a baby born without plastic chemicals in its body. But that's the goal. You know, that's the goal. The goal is we will save the planet through our research. But it's, as I said before, I can't close with an optimistic message that this will happen anytime soon. We've seen that science does progress, but that politics goes backwards. And since science has now become so political, it has to become political in such a way that we stop regressing in our political universe. Our political universe is abhorrent. And that political universe, you can't even have a discussion with the most progressive interviewer, except in your case where we have enough time. The most common phrase you hear is, we only have a minute left. We have 30 seconds left. We only have a couple minutes left. That's the takeaway messages. There's no time. It's not what the person says with a minute left or 30 seconds left. It's the fact that there's no time to have this discussion that would allow us to define the box. And then, Yeah, for sure. Well, and on that point, although I do have just a few last questions about the writing process, I do want to say here, thank you for making so much time sharing very generously of your time, your experience, your wisdom with me and everybody listening. And as one attempt to express my gratitude, and I will go on and make a contribution to the new work you're doing as well through the QR code or through the website. But I have also gone to kiva.org, the micro lending site, and I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to a female entrepreneur named Maria who lives in Moldova who will use this money to connect her home to an aqueduct and a sewer to improve the quality of life for her and her children. So I just wanted to thank you for giving me a reason to go make that microloan. I believe that lending, that model is valid in this economy that we're currently in because the return on investment is why people lend. They want to get that money back and then some, but That's not a concept that's universally accepted around the world. There are people that 
call it usury, that believe it's immoral, and that we shouldn't expect our good works to result in increased income and return to ourselves, that our good works should be altruistic. So there's a contradiction there, and we have to work within that contradiction. There are so many contradictions in our current way of living that require us to straddle a very difficult stream of occurrences. So I compliment you for that. I know that I work with people around the world, and I believe it's the grassroots, as I said before. Grassroots is kind of another way of saying local economy. And the grassroots movements that are around the world are uniting. Before I started studying plastic pollution, there were no global plastic reduction efforts. Zero. Now there are thousands. I don't take credit for that, but what I do say is that I was correct in predicting the problem as being serious and one that was growing rapidly. And that response to that rapidly growing problem has been gratifying to see. And when one can invest in that movement of grassroots organizations to combat whatever local problem they see, that return on investment to me is much more valuable than me. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And one of the things I love about Kiva.org, by the way, is the model is really, I think, a neat one because any individual lender, you know, me or anyone else who lends through Kiva.org never sees a return personally, but instead any interest income goes to what they call a field partner. So somebody in that country who operates as that micro lending bank who then interfaces with the entrepreneurs. So it's really a neat thing that technology has made possible. Okay, so final part of the interview here, just a few questions related to writing and the process of creating a book. I know there's a story <laughs> behind every book. Everyone is as unique as the people who write it. And I wonder if you would be willing to just share with me briefly, maybe the thumbnail sketch of how did this book, how did your life experience things you had learned, you know, this data, how did it come to be between the two covers? or in the Kindle, as it was in my case. <laughs> yeah. How did it become a reality? Well, I started by writing scientific papers. You know, the paper that blew the lid off this issue was our comparison of plastic and plankton in the North Pacific Center of Dyer that found six kilos of plastic for every kilo of zooplankton in the surface water. So when there was more plastic than life in the middle of the ocean, as far from human civilization as you can get anywhere on Earth, that was a profound revelation. And... The idea that I could have that kind of effect by writing a peer-reviewed scientific paper led me to want more peer-reviewed scientific papers. So that was my goal. And when the idea of writing a book was floated, I wanted it to be science, pure science. I did not want a biography. I didn't want people to know more about me, per se. I wanted them to know about the issue. But my co-author, who, you know, this was in a little library in Waimea, Hawaii, on the Big Island. They were having a community meeting about waste that I met my co-author. He told me about her work with the orchids. And I told her about my work with plastic and how her substrate was very fascinating. And it was her husband that said, you know, this could be a book. It turns out my co-author had experience with books and with working with other authors. She was an English major and had talent in that regard and also had an agent. So... When we approached the agent about writing the book, I wanted to bring in another scientist. So I selected someone who was working on endocrine disruptors in the East Coast. We came in and we wrote, you have to write a chapter. The way you 
push a book through an agent and say, well, give me a chapter. So we wrote a chapter and the agent was not happy. He said, look, here's what I'm going to do. This was not with my co-author currently. This was with another scientist, right? I didn't want to necessarily do the book with the orchid lady. I was thinking about, you know, let me just write this book and we'll talk about plastic pollution. And, you know, we can bring in the other topic, but more important to me was the endocrine disruptors. And so we took this to the agent and she knew my current co-author as a talented writer, as someone who could make a saleable book. And she said, here's the deal. I don't think this is going to work, but I will offer your current co-author, the scientist, her own book. She can write a book about the endocrine disruptors. But I want you to have Cassandra to be your co-author because she can make this readable. And that's what you need. You know, someone that can help you make this book readable. And so I reluctantly agreed. I was not happy. We put the book out to bid and the highest bid was not from the company I want. I wanted the company that was publishing my professor at UCSD, you know, someone that published radical books, but we got Penguin instead because they offered the highest amount of money up front. A warning to authors, all you're ever going to get probably is whatever they offer you up front because they make you pay that back in sales before they ever give you any money. And unless you have a, a bang up bestseller that sells lots and lots of copies, you're never going to get any payments from your publisher other than that initial advance that they give you to write the book. So we took the initial advance. We began writing chapters. She would polish them. Somewhere my own manifesto that I refused to have any changes made, but others we allowed her to wordsmith, and she actually did a lot of research on her own to do what she thought was interesting sidelights and research topics, which she did an excellent job on. So it would never have been as readable, as popular, as well acclaimed of a book if it hadn't been for Cassandra. Mine would have been a dry scientific paper that I would hope to have raised eyebrows by the findings of the science. But that doesn't really work in what they call the popular literature. The popular literature has got to be readable. It's got to be a page turner. And scientific papers aren't page turners, unless you're a scientist. Right. Yeah, this book, I did find it to be readable, and it was much more of a history of plastic than I expected it, and an exploration of chemical, you know, the chemical industry, but I found it interesting and concerning. And you're the only author that I've ever met or even heard of that was disappointed by being published by Penguin. <laughs> Most people would be so thrilled, you know? I still am thinking I've got to do... I've noticed in books now, chapters are getting shorter and sequences, are, you know, topics are getting shorter. Pretty much we're losing language as an art. Emojis now are taking the place of language. People don't even have to write any words. They can just communicate with emojis and bites of this and that. But maybe the next book will just have to be aphorisms, things like, you know, quotes that you like today, string a few of those together and let them just read a block of this, a block of that, and just a whole bunch of aphorisms, as if it were like a book of poems, but not poetry, just prose, prose poems, in some sort of sequence. Yeah, highly uh, tweetable, right? Yeah, uh, highly tweetable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. What was your process like to, so you had the chance meeting in the library, you met Cassandra there, you weren't initially going to write it with her, but you did stay with her agent, as I understand, through that process. Right. Then the agent basically said, no, 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 she can do it. <laughs> Trust me. 
you did give it a shot. Obviously it worked out. What was the process like of working together? I know it can be hard enough to write a book on our own. And I know that writing a book with someone else presents its own challenges, but how did the two of you coordinate? What was your working schedule like? What tools did you use? Anything like that, that would help the listener get a sense of how did the book become a reality? Well, we first outlined it and chapter titles, you know, we fought a lot over chapter titles. I didn't like some of her titles, but she pretty much won that fight too, as far as the chapter titles go. Mm. On the topic of titles for a moment, what was the working title for the book? I always wanted Plastic Ocean. So it carried through from concept all the way to publishing. Uh, there may have been some other tentative titles, but yeah. I don't remember them now. Okay. So you outlined it. You gave each chapter a title. Then what happened? Then we began producing material. and I would produce material. She would produce material. We would cross edit. So there wasn't really any assignment, as it were, although certain chapters she would have the lead and other chapters I would have the lead. So we would certainly edit each other's thoughts. Basically, we're both learning too, you know, sharing what we've learned about this issue because for her, it was more research that she had to do to get to where I was because I was already immersed in it. I, when I started this inquiry, I was lucky to find one paper a year about plastic pollution. Now there's one every day, you know. So I religiously kept track of literature on plastic at the outset, plastic pollution and ocean plastics, so that I'd have a bibliography to refer to. And she had to get up to speed with that bibliography and do her own research. So that's why you have some of the personalities of the chemists that did the first plastics is because of her research. Hmm. When you were writing the book, what was your writing routine like? Did you write every day? Did you write in the morning? Were you a night owl? Did you have a word count or a page count? Any other rituals or routines that you observed as you wrote? No. <laughs> okay. How about caffeine? How did that factor in? I don't drink coffee. I take a lot of nutrients, but I don't drink coffee. There was not a lot of pressure involved in this. It's something we wanted to do. We really enjoyed doing. And I don't recall any particular routine. Sometimes I'm good in the morning. Sometimes I'm good late at night. I have a lot going on. You know, I've got the research vessel. I'm voyaging. I'm constantly involved in repairs. My business before I got into being a ship's captain was in furniture repair, restoration. And you really can't be a good small boat captain unless you're a repairman. Boats are what we call Fords, fix or repair daily. You're in a caustic environment when you're in the marine environment. It's like being in an acid bath and you're constantly having things break, things go bad that don't do it on that scale on a terrestrial environment. So I'm busy all the time. I'm one of these guys that's constantly busy taking care of business on my farm, with my organizations, with my vessel. Giving TED Talks, appearing on the Colbert Report. Doing a lot of it. I accepted every interview with the rationale that I needed to get. In fact, I actually allowed Vice TV, one of their first field trips was on my vessel. And I did it because I wanted to reach that demographic. And they were terrible crew because I have to have volunteer crew. I, I don't have enough room to have like a crew and some videographers. They have to be the crew. And they were awful. They didn't obey orders. They put me in danger when I had to climb up the mast. I said, 
I don't want you filming this. They wanted to film in case I fell off the mast. But I said, I need you to track the vessel directly downwind, directly with the swell, so that I'm not swinging back and forth while I'm working on the mast. And no, they went away from the wheel and started taking pictures of it. So I did it because I wanted to reach that demographic. I wanted to reach the people that watch a 12-part episode. In that time frame, it was a 12-part episode on, on the internet, on ViTV, Voyage to the Center of the Garbage or something like or Voyage to Garbage Island. And it worked. I got a lot of kids that saw that and told me about it. And so I accepted all from the most scientific, you know, society of environmental toxicologists and chemists to uh, Vice TV. You know, I've spanned that whole demographic. And that goes back to my childhood. I was in a car club and the physics team, you know. I was an athlete and on the chemistry team. I just didn't want to miss anything. I still feel that. That's why I say life is a smorgasbord because I've experienced that smorgasbord of life. And I don't see why anybody should be confined in this day and age. It really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Captain Moore, if there was a final piece of advice or encouragement that you would give people listening specifically related to writing, what would you say? 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration. You've got to have the inspiration. I mean, that 10% may precede the 90%. You've got to be inspired to want to do it, but it is a chore. And believe me, I follow Emerson's advice. You know, he wrote a letter to a friend and said, this letter would not be so long, but I ran out of time. Every time you go over it, you find a way to shorten it and make it more pithy and make it better. So don't be afraid to go over and over and over. Make it resonate because that won't be the first way it comes out. It won't come out as something that really resonates. It's going to come out as words on paper, and you're going to have to refine that a number of times to get it where you want it to go. And I don't say necessarily tear it up and throw it away and start over, but don't be afraid to radically revise things after you realize you're on a dead end. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Okay, and then the final question of the interview here is if there's a final piece of advice, encouragement, instruction, captain's orders, anything that people listening that you want them to know or do? Be independent. Don't follow the crowd. Realize that many of your thoughts have been programmed into you. That to free yourself, you need to shut off the TV. You need to turn off the phone. You need to get away from it all. You know, that new fad that's sweeping the internet, everybody's doing it. It's called going outside. Go outside. I just don't want to be inside that much anymore. I really want to be outside. I really want to experience nature. Every screen now, when you turn on your computer, it's got a natural scene in it. When you go to buy a big screen TV, all those screens are either got sports on, which no, there's no sports there. So every screen's got a natural scene to make you want to buy that TV. And people are going to places on the planet because they've seen them on their screen on their tv i want that view of that place that i saw on my screen on my tv folks those views are in your neighborhood they're in your yard they're nearby if you can get away to a quiet place and just spend some time there and not have to be on your phone not have to be 
having input because see you're an appendage of the machine human being today is not a human being a human being is an appendage and your value is only as an appendage of that machine the one that you are using that is how they want to see how you navigate through that universe of being not independent but being connected being attached being controlled by forces outside you. You must be thrown back on yourself at some point in your life. And to do that, you will have to disconnect. You'll have to find out who you are apart from your clothes, your phone, your computer, your earbuds. You're gonna have to find out who you are as an independent individual. And to do that, you will have to disconnect. And believe me, those beautiful scenes that are made so enticing when you turn on your computer are those scenes that if you can possibly do it, you can get away and experience in the quietness and peacefulness of natural settings in your own age. Awesome. Thank you. Beautiful. And thank you again. As I go to articulate it now, it feels inadequate, but I am really grateful to you for the work you're doing, for the book you've written, yeah, like I said, it introduced a lot of thoughts to me, opened my eyes to a lot of things, kind of freaked me out in some ways. But uh, I'm glad to know that you've been doing this the majority of my life. <laughs> and I think our planet is better because of the work you're doing, the conversations that, you're, that you've started. Thank you so much. Peace be with you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.